Good evening. Uh, one of the few things I have on the wall of the room where I work is a watercolour by Jocelyn Herbert, which represents one of the scenes from my play, Savages, which opened at the Royal Court 40 years ago in April 1973. She signed it with love and admiration, Jocelyn. I keep it where I often see it, first because I like it, and it reminds me of Jocelyn, whom I loved and admired, but also because it's a reminder that there are many other qualities more valuable than knowing how to spell, most of which Jocelyn possessed in abundance. A look through her working diaries will tell you that she never quite got on top of how to spell the word rehearsal, but it will also demonstrate the depth and conscientiousness of a woman who never stopped thinking and probing and experimenting to find ways to enhance the particular text that was engaging her at any given time, a true and rare artist of the theater. I was lucky enough to work with Jocelyn twice. On both occasions, she co-designed with Andrew Sanders, who I believe is here this evening, and both plays, by a bizarre coincidence, were set mostly in the Brazilian jungle. I do write plays set in other places. Uh, in, indeed, these two plays and a couple of films set in Argentina are the only times I've forayed into South America. But the coincidence can perhaps provide a useful angle from which to examine some of Jocelyn's techniques and procedures. Most conspicuously, despite the superficial similarity of the settings, Jocelyn instinctively sensed that these two plays inhabited entirely separate universes. And consequently, her solutions to the apparently identical problems they posed were radically different. The two plays, by the way, were the play I've already referred to, Savages, at the Royal Court and later at the Comedy Theatre, directed by Robert Kidd. And an adaptation of a novel by George Steiner called The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H., which played at the Mermaid Theatre in the spring of 1982, directed by John Dexter. And what I mostly want to do this evening is use these two plays to draw attention to the way Jocelyn's work, however various the methods used, was always directed towards one overwhelming priority, to serve the play. In fact, as it turned out, I had, as it were, inadvertently worked once before with Jocelyn, before I got to know her. In 1969, while I was still the prototype experimental model resident dramatist at the Royal Court, I was summoned to a meeting with Tony Richardson, now rarely spotted at the court, at his offices at Woodfall Films. Pausing only to open a bottle of Dom Perignon and to give me his Oscar ballot to fill out, you can vote for anyone except Vanessa, he said. He asked me if I would write a film for him about Ned Kelly, a subject about which I need hardly add, I knew next to nothing. As a fledgling screenwriter, and fledgling just about everything else, this was a job I very much wanted to accept, and the 250 pounds a week I was offered seemed like a fortune. But the conditions were somewhat stringent. I had to write the script and deliver it in two weeks and I had to write it on site in a small village Tony owned in the south of France, uh, near La Garde Frenet, a place which uh, had held unhappy associations for me ever since a disastrous holiday with a now ex-girlfriend. Tony undertook to get the court to release me for two weeks, which they were happy to do on the understanding that this would constitute my annual holiday. Uh, and I found myself arriving on a beautiful early summer evening with my swimming trunks and portable typewriter a machine on which I was far from proficient, preferring then, as now, to write by hand. 
I was given what I suppose must be the pool house, an austere hut at one corner of the pool, with a table, a chair, and a single bed, beside which had been left a tottering pile of manuscripts, which turned out to be a kind of elephant's graveyard of Ned Kelly's scripts, by writers far more distinguished than me, like David Storey and John Arden. None of them got anywhere near, Tony said unencouragingly. And I decided not to look at any of them, not that I had time for such a thing. And so for the next two weeks, day and night, I wrote and wrote, while up at the big house, games were played, champagne was poured, drugs were taken, and a Gatsby-esque party ebbed and flowed, as David Hockney, Ossie Clark, and large numbers of those who had put the swing into the 60s came and went and stretched out by the pool. I finished the script late on my last evening, handed it to Tony and collapsed into bed. The next morning, he was far less scathing than I'd feared. Indeed, he was modestly complimentary and asked if I'd be free to go to Australia for the filming. I assured him I would, got in the car to Nice Airport, and never exchanged another word with him. A year or so later, when I paid for my ticket to see the film at the London Pavilion, um, I was shocked by how much of my script had been retained, although at least in a final act of mercy, Tony had decided not to give me a credit. <laughs> Jocelyn's work was exemplary, by far the best thing in the film. The point of this story is that the men Jocelyn habitually worked with, Tony, Samuel Beckett, Lindsay Anderson, Bill Gaskell, Peter Hall, Tony Harrison, and John Dexter, not to mention George Devine, who was regrettably a little before my time, have very little in common, except that they were all, in their different ways, exceedingly demanding. Jocelyn was entirely unintimidated by this. Indeed, she embraced and knew how to deal with these demands with considerable equanimity and grace. My first encounter with Jocelyn's work was Bill Gaskell's production of Brecht's first play, Baal, never before performed in English and looking back on it, an astonishing undertaking for a West End theater. I was 17 at the time, and struggling with a dissertation I was writing on Brecht, with whom I have had a contentious relationship ever since. But I have a number of vivid memories of that evening. I remember spotting Arnold Wesker in The Gents. His presence in the audience makes, of course, perfect historical sense in view of Jocelyn's recent work on his trilogy and on Chips With Everything. And I remember Jocelyn's gigantic cyclorama and the beauty and delicacy of many of the images. The play was slippery and exasperating, but the relationship between Peter O'Toole and Harry Andrews, especially in a disturbing scene in, in a dark wood, was uh, um, evocative. Just as Brecht had Rambo and Verlaine in mind when writing about Baal and Eckhart, I'm sure this production somehow infiltrated my subconscious when in turn I came to write about Rambo and Verlaine a few years later. Then there was the Olivier Othello, John Dexter's production at the Old Vic, for which I rose at some improbable hour to join the queue at 6 a.m. for a three-shilling day ticket. The resulting seat was so far up in the gods, I swear you could hear the announcements on Waterloo Station. But the play unfurled with absolute confidence and clarity. Jocelyn later said she felt guilty that the design could have been better, but the best artists are always the most self-critical, and I can still see the monumentality and simplicity of Desdemona's bedroom, um, and also the vivid physicality of um, uh, Olivier in his dazzling white robe and the jewelry Jocelyn persuaded him to wear, having coaxed him out of what she called a sort of Negro minstrel's wig. 
Finally, among the dozen or so of Jocelyn's designs I saw before I worked with her, I choose David Storey's Home, directed by Lindsay Anderson at the court. I could equally well have commented on the hyper-realism of the changing room uh, or the simplicity of life class about which David Storey said, absolutely what I had in mind and totally integrated with what I'd written. But there was something unforgettable about the absolute stark lucidity of Jocelyn's set for home. Um, there was a huge fight about the flagpole, uh, which was Lindsay Anderson's idea, which was greatly opposed by Jocelyn and, um, uh, and David Storey, but she finally gave in and, um, uh, and later admitted that she thought it was, uh, she thought it was a, 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 good, a good thing to have this uh, vertical uh, against the, the, the clean uh, lines of the of the um, uh, of the rest of the set. Uh, the play rehearsed at the in the theatre, uh, which meant I was able to drop in on rehearsals and watch John Gilgood and Ralph Richardson's tremendously subtle and genteel efforts to upstage one another, and listen to them earnestly discussing walking sticks and hats with Lindsay Anderson. If I have the walking stick in my right hand, Johnny. Perhaps it would be easier if I came in upstage of you. But perhaps he's left-handed. What do you think, Lindsay? Lindsay Anderson once brilliantly said of Jocelyn, she doesn't really think there ought to be sets. This is not the same as minimalism. It simply means that the fewer elements there are on the stage, the more perfect each individual object needs to be. Lindsay also said, the better a designer is, the less likely it is that their work will be noticed. This was part of his continuous polemic against English critics. But it encapsulates a wider truth. Work which draws attention to itself tends not to serve the film or the play it is part of. Uh, and this is as true of lighting or cinematography or translation as it is of design. Before going into detail about Jocelyn's work on savages, it might be as well uh, to briefly describe the play, its background, and some of the problems it poses. Inspired by an article uh, by Norman Lewis called Genocide in the Sunday Times color magazine, which in those days, amazing to recall, had a reputation for crusading investigative journalism, Savages deals with the systematic extermination of the forest Indians in Brazil by various commercial interests in the 60s. Um, by a strange coincidence, there's an exhibition elsewhere in the theater of photographs by Robin Hanbury Tennyson, whose uh, charity, Survival International, which looks after indigenous tribes, was also inspired by, by Norman Lewis's uh, um, article. The central incident of the play concerns a mining company which, tired of the effort and expense involved in tracking down individuals and small groups of Indians in the jungle in order to kill them, hired an expert who told them that on a certain day, a tribe called the Cintas Largas were to hold a ritual ceremony known as the Quarup, which all the branches of the tribe from the surrounding area would attend in considerable numbers. This made it easy for the company to send over a light aircraft to bomb them during their performance, land the plane, and shoot the survivors. The other half of the play describes the kidnap of a not very important British diplomat in Rio by revolutionary urban guerrillas against the release of a certain number of political prisoners. The strand connecting the two stories is that the diplomat, Alan West, is also a published minor poet 
who has been researching the Indians' legends for a new collection of poems, and in the process has become aware of their appalling plight. It's perhaps worth reminding ourselves of the historical circumstances. The Brazilian government of the day was a military dictatorship, fascist in all but name, though extremely popular, being resolutely anti-communist, with the American government and, by extension, ourselves. Uh, the fr fragmented opposition uh, contained various revolutionary movements, largely, as in other contemporary Latin American countries, consisting of middle-class, educated young people, many of them from well-to-do families. Their policy of kidnapping diplomats and exchanging them for politi political prisoners, uh, which they had already done with an American, a West German, and a Swiss, had met with a good deal of success. So the dialectical backbone bone of the play, a series of conversations between Alan West and his urban, not to say urbane, guerrilla kidnapper, Carlos, more or less echoes my own education as a well-meaning Western liberal horrified by the brutal murder of the jungle Indians, who gradually discovers how in, in, indissolubly linked that murder is to the general political situation of the country and the continent, and by extension, the ideological and economic interests of Western Europe and America. The composition of the play had been proceeding in fits and starts, and not in any chronological order, when it became clear to me that there was no avoiding the fact I would have to go to Brazil. This should have been obvious to me from the start, but it crept up on me. In retrospect, of course, it's clear the play could never have been finished without that journey, dismaying and sometimes frightening as it was. It was my first experience of a country where, even if they were speaking English to you, people would lower their voices for fear of being overheard. The few men and women Amnesty International asked me to make contact with in Rio and Sao Paulo had all disappeared. And our trip into the Xingu National Park, to an enormous island in the middle of the river Araguaia called Bananal, resulted in our being thrown off the island and dumped across the river by the army within a matter of hours. So that in order to visit the Indian tribe under the nominal care of the Indian Protection Service, we were obliged to find someone in the little frontier town who would agree to row us back clandestinely to the Indian reservation, where the Indians, with certain defiant exceptions, were unhealthy-looking, dejected, and dressed in tattered cast-offs. The final revelation came back in Rio, where I went into a big record shop and asked if they had any Indian music. They brought me Ravi Shankar. No, no, I said Brazilian Indian music. General bewilderment. Finally, somebody said, but there are no Brazilian Indians. All this was a clear demonstration of something not to be found in any of the literature, that the deliberate elimination of an entire race was, relatively speaking, an insignificant blip amid the vast and apparently intractable problems of poverty, injustice, and oppression. During the couple of hours we spent with the Indians, I became intrigued with a toy belonging to a little boy of about eight or nine. This was a thin piece of wood carved into the shape of a fish, 10 inches to a foot in length, with a long piece of string threaded through the fish's nose. And it's what is called a bull roarer, which when swung in a wide circle, emits a characteristic deep roaring vibrato or musical note. The little boy drew it for me on a sheet of paper with a marker pen. This little drawing was, I think, the blast-off point or inspiration for Jocelyn's design. She became entranced with the various animal shapes into which the Indians would carve their artifacts, stools, cooking bowls, masks, and with their favored color schemes for painting these artifacts and their bodies, red, black, and brilliant white, often on a kind of dull orange base. 
She asked Andrew Sanders uh, to prepare a selection of these for her. And various pieces were made for the actors playing the Indians. She also loved the shape of the Indians' huts. And eventually she settled on a large, textured hut facade, upstage center, woven with a kind of black, dry grass, looming over the ultimate mass slaughter. For the bark mask of the chief, which he wrongly believes will make him invulnerable, she created a magnificently expressive rectangular face. I don't have a photograph, but Andrew Sanders believes that this mask was an important stage on a journey culminating in Jocelyn's extraordinary work for the Oresteia in this theater. Surely the most effective, powerful, and beautiful use of masks any of us has yet seen. The ceremonial of the Quarup is extremely complex. Its centerpiece is the ritual funeral of those of chiefly birth who have died in the previous couple of years. But it also includes the mass marriage of the young girls of the village who since puberty have been kept secluded in a communal hut under close supervision, as well as wrestling matches between the young men from the surrounding villages. In the center of the ceremonial ground stand what are known as the Quarup posts, one for each of the dead chiefs, which over the two or three days the ceremony lasts are gradually embellished and dressed until they are finally deemed to have actually become the chiefs they represent, ready to depart for the spirit world. Jocelyn was cap captivated by this image and made it the center and focus of the Indian scenes. Now, there's a story attached to this particular set. Some enterprising person thought it might be a good idea to fly a huge Brazilian flag outside the royal court during the run of the play, and it was certainly eye-catching. But very soon, the theater received a call from the Arts Council. The Brazilian embassy had, for some reason or other, uh, taken violent objection to the play and complained to the Foreign Office, which in turn had complained to the Arts Council. The embassy had demanded the removal of the flag from Sloane Square and from the stage and the immediate cutting of the Brazilian national anthem used to set up and move out of this scene. The theater, now under the artistic directorship of Oscar Lewinstein, protested that this was an infringement of our artistic freedom. The censorship of plays under the Lord Chamberlain had ended in 1968, as it happens in the middle of the run of Total Eclipse, which consequently ran five minutes longer when it closed than when it opened. <laughs> Nevertheless, the Arts Council, under pressure from the Foreign Office, which was no doubt alarmed by this nightly insult to a valuable trading partner run by gangsters and torturers, uh, insisted, threatening, if the offending matters were not attended to, to reduce or withdraw altogether the theater's annual grant. So the Brazilian flag outside the theater was hauled down. Though, gambling on the extreme unlikelihood of a further visit to the play by anyone in the Brazilian embassy, and the even greater unlikelihood of anyone from the Arts Council coming to see it, <laughs> Jocelyn, Robert Kidd, and I decided, with Oscar's agreement, to leave the flag and the national anthem where they were in the play. And sure enough, during the rest of the run at the court and the subsequent nine months run at the comedy theater, no one ever said another word. The play is in 22 scenes, and the designer's problem is to find a way to flow seamlessly from the scenes in the jungle to the various other locations, the West's house, government offices in Rio, the guerrilla hideout in which West is held captive, and the colonial-style bungalow we saw in my original watercolor, among others. The Royal Court Theatre has one of the most successful audience stage relationships of any theatre in London. The extension of the forestage by George Devine gives the stage greater depth than would normally be the case in a theatre of this size. But there has always been a troublesome lack of wing space, which uh, complicates the scene change process. 
Jocelyn had been impressed with the stage work of David Hockney. It had been a feature of the Royal Court to invite painters to design plays. Patrick Proctor had made his stage debut with his bold and original design of my play, Total Eclipse. And Hockney had designed a notably anarchic production of Jarry's Ubu Roi for the Royal Court. His use of cutouts and silhouettes had in particular caught Jocelyn's attention. And when she decided to use palettes to glide on and off between the scenes in Savages, the lightness of the materials she was able to use for these silhouetted back walls greatly facilitated the smoothness of the transitions. I might add in parenthesis that for my most recent play, Appomattox, which opened at the Guthrie Theatre last autumn in Minneapolis, which is set at the end of the Civil War and during the Civil Rights Movement, the designer, Thomas Lynch, faced with similar problems, went for the same solution. But the weight of heavy furniture and the use of sophisticated computers, rather than the muscle power of the unparalleled stage management at the Royal Court, meant that 40 years on, the transitions were far more fraught and considerably less reliable. Jocelyn always began with little paintings of the characters in costume. She herself was often very dismissive of these, but they helped fix the characters for her and for the director and formed the basis of the conversation she needed to have with the actors, as well as establishing the very subtle color range she felt would best suit the emotional temperature of the play. She would also create for herself and others a kind of storyboard. These were maps which charted for her the flow of stage images and the directions forward and back taken by the play as it weaves its way from one location to another. Subsequent productions of Savages have brought home to me just how difficult the play is to design and how lucky we were to start with Jocelyn. The most successful of these was the first American production by Gordon Davidson at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, which was designed, as it turned out, by a former assistant of Jocelyn's, Sally Jacobs, who had gone on to design the Marassade and a Midsummer Night's Dream for Peter Brook. Her task was, if anything, even more demanding than Jocelyn's had been because the Mark Taper has an open stage where nothing can be trucked on from the wings or flown in. The implications of this were far-reaching, and in fact started me on a course which led to extensive rewriting of the play to improve its fluidity. Sally's set consisted of a suggestion of the Indian village and uniform brown carpeting onto which pieces of furniture could be set when absolutely necessary. The gorilla hideout trucked forward from the back. New scenes of narration from the anthropologist character clarified uh, the meaning and the progress of the quarry while giving space for scene changes. The Indians were played by members of a North American Indian dance troupe and were far more present and integrated into the play than they had been in London. Thus, in the scene I just described on the veranda of the old retired Indian Protection Service official, an Indian sat right downstage with his son teaching him how to mend an arrow and then walked straight through the veranda set without either pair of actors apparently being aware of each other's existence. All in all, it was a striking illustration of something Jocelyn once wrote. In my experience, she said, physical limitations and budget restrictions can result in a more interesting or imaginative production stylistically than you might have come up with without them. The first German production of the play by Peter Zadek at his theater in Bochum certainly confirms the negative of this. Monumental sets trundled on and off a stage seemingly the size of a football pitch. Lights blazed on in the auditorium whenever a character made a political point, uh, while the uh, Indian dimension of the play was largely ignored. Though not as excessive as many of the sets my plays have found themselves struggling to fight their way out of, I'm thinking particularly of a Dusseldorf production of Tales from Hollywood, when a real swimming pool emerged from the proscenium into the orchestra pit like a drawer being opened in a sideboard. Or indeed a production of Savages in Basel, an evening which ended, I regret to say, in fisticuffs, 
when the first post-kidnap scene took place, inaudibly, of course, inside a flashy American automobile. So Zadek's production, though ruthlessly clear, was almost entirely unatmospheric. As an author, you only have to sit once, as I did at the German premiere of The Philanthropist, wondering who could possibly have decided a gold telephone might be an appropriate prop for the study of an Oxford don, to understand how essential good design is to a play, and to be grateful for the tact, skill, and taste of our designers. A word here about the Royal Court's lighting designer, Andy Phillips, who worked with Jocelyn on both my plays and had a symbiotic understanding of her aesthetic. As different a personality from Jocelyn as could be imagined, rough, superficially cynical, but in fact as passionately determined as Jocelyn to serve the play and keep out of its way, he kept the lighting grid exposed and visible at all times, and used it to light the stage with total precision and clarity and an absolute naturalness, unthinkable for an actor to wear makeup on the Royal Court stage in Andy's day. One of my favorite phases of the rehearsal period was the all-night fit-up during the technical, with Andy, untipped cigarette permanently dangling from the corner of his mouth, liberally dispensing teacher's whiskey and sardonic wisecracks as he casually made the minute adjustments his extraordinary eye dictated. Occasionally, in later years, working on a musical or on Broadway, I would hear in my inner ear the low rumble of Andy's outraged mutter as he contemptuously dismissed this or that egregious artificiality, and I would blush. These were very good people to work with in one's early days in the theater. Not Puritan, just pure. George Steiner's novel, The Portage to San Cristobal of A.H., published in 1981, uses an imaginary situation to make a number of provocative observations about the Holocaust. The situation is that at the end of the 70s, an Israeli search team, directed by a veteran Nazi hunter, Emmanuel Lieber, tracks down and arrests the 90-year-old Adolf Hitler deep in the Brazilian jungle with the idea of smuggling him across the Colombian border to San Cristobal and back to Israel to stand trial. Conditions in the jungle, however, are so extreme that the captors begin to die and under enormous pressure decide to conduct the trial in the jungle. Hitler, who until this point has hardly spoken a word, insists on conducting his own defense. The book ends with a huge monologue, lasting about 25 minutes in the theater version, in which Hitler claims, among other things, to have taken the idea of the master race from the Jews themselves and gives himself the credit for the foundation of the state of Israel, which, he asserts, would never have come into being without the Holocaust. As he draws to a conclusion, the sound of approaching helicopters is heard. As I say, the novel was deliberately provocative, and the play certainly ruffled some feathers as well. Alec McCown's magnificent performance as Hitler, which won him the Evening Standard Award for Best Actor, meant that Hitler's defense was delivered with the maximum skill and eloquence, and the theater was picketed by protest groups. The first American production, which I didn't see, perhaps luckily, uh, was slaughtered by the New York Times, which said that of all the plays and books exploiting the Holocaust, this was undoubtedly the most obscene and worthless. This was on top of their book critic calling it a misconceived and badly executed novel. So, by no means an easy or comfortable piece. The adaptation had been proposed to me by Bernard Miles, the, remarkably the remarkable eccentric who ran the Mermaid Theatre. I happened to have read the novel already and accepted right away over the phone. I wrote the play very quickly. Bernard rushed it into production, and it opened only about nine months after the novel had been published. On finishing the play, I had shown it to Harold Pinter, 
who immediately expressed a desire to direct it. But by the time I communicated this to Bernard Miles, he had already committed to John Dexter, who, as a matter of course, brought Jocelyn along with him. John's reputation was formidable, not to say a little alarming, but I found him tremendously lively, intuitive, and enjoyable to work with. My only criticism might be that he was perhaps too enthusiastic about the play to hear a word against it. My own reservations were certainly brushed away. I kept trying to persuade him gently that this was not likely to be a smash hit on the level he anticipated. It was too dark, painful, and ornery, but he was too in love with the play's vivid exchange of ideas, palatable and otherwise, to listen. The play's technical problems were remarkably similar to those of Savage's, even though it had four fewer scenes. While, where in Savage's, the three main settings were the guerrilla hideout in the present, and in flashback, various interior or exterior domestic spaces and the depths of the jungle. In the portage to San Cristobal, the three main settings between which it was necessary to move with the maximum fluidity, were the radio transmitting station where Lieber, with very little success, tries to keep in touch with and direct the operation. The outside world where various individuals are beginning to receive the first garbled news of Hitler's capture in Britain, Russia, Germany, France, and America, and the depths of the jungle. As I say, a very similar set of requirements on the face of it, but Jocelyn's response was, as I said, radically different. She isolated Lieber, played by Sebastian Shaw, on a bridge running between two scaffolding towers. She trucked in the outside world scenes, once again on pallets gliding down from the deep upstage. While the jungle was represented this time abstractly by a tangle of dark steel rods and netting suspended above the actors. What Jocelyn had immediately and instinctively grasped was that whereas the jungle in Savages was real and atmospheric, the cradle of the play's tragedy, the jungle in Portage was metaphorical, a menacing tangled darkness serving as a frame for a philosophical and intellectual battle. The plot of Portage is a fantasy designed to throw into relief a number of complex, somber, and potentially dangerous lines of inquiry into mass delusion, ancestral guilt, and anti-Semitism. Its, uh, uh, its arguments are sometimes developed with an almost unendurable accumulation of detail provided by Lieber, uh, and Jocelyn, that's why Jocelyn placed him above the action on the bridge, like a hovering supernatural spirit or a nagging conscience. So the jungle is in the mind rather than on the map. Jocelyn's studio opening onto Pottery Lane, north of Holland Park, was the back part of her house on Princedale Road. It was an exciting moment to go down to Pottery Lane to look at the costume drawings and the set model for the first time. The studio itself was a convivial space with much that was fascinating to look at, including, for example, some of the tribal masks she had brought back from New Guinea when she went after Ned Kelly finished shooting. The idea of remote jungle tribes and their indigenous art was something she knew about firsthand well before designing Savages. Her house was for many years the venue for meetings of the Committee for the George Devine Award, on which I served for at least a decade, and she would provide delicious meals and robust wines, which the committee would fall on like ravening wolves after every contentious discussion. What I remember most vividly, as well as the sociability of those occasions, was the warmth and determination with which she would support her favored candidates, let's say Robert Holman, against the persuasive arguments of others. Faced by a, devastated dem a devastating demolition of her position by, say, David Storey, she wouldn't even attempt to counter his attack, knowing he could easily out-debate her, but she would remain stubbornly convinced of the justice of her intuitively arrived at positive impression. The royal court in its early days was not especially, or actually in any way, 
chivalrous to women. Uh, and she must often as have been, as Angelico and Sheila Delaney were, dismissed and condescended to. But the firmness of her character, her confidence in her own judgment, whether it could easily be articulated or not, and her refusal to leave any proposition unexamined, all added up to an authority it was impossible not to respect, even though it was an authority concealed under layers of self-deprecating modesty. Modesty is a quality that lay very close to the heart of her working methods, a modesty which, however, contained no element of deference or lack of conviction. What we were there to do, she said, was to present the play as close as possible to what the author intended. What writer, then, would not be thrilled to work with her, especially as she had a striking gift for intuiting what these intentions might be? The minimum of scenery and props, props she wrote, i.e., only those that served the actors and the play, nothing that was for decorative purposes only, unless the text or the style of the play demanded it. This seems to me as valid a manifesto today as ever it was. Finally, she said, there seems no right way to design a play, only perhaps a right approach. As far as I'm concerned, anybody who holds these beliefs and devotes a working lifetime absolutely attentive to their demands and implications is supremely worth our love and our admiration. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.